Well, welcome everyone. I want to extend uh, my gratefulness for us to worship together and wherever you may be. I know we have people all over the country right now, uh, all parts of our great, uh, all the states, and they're all experiencing what February looks like in Michigan, except for those of you in Florida. Uh, I know you guys have shorts and AC on. I know I see you, Ray and Julie, and I know that uh, we're all a little bit jealous here as we're still uh, below freezing, but I think the weather is turning here, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, as you saw, we are kicking off our Romans 8 series, uh, Inseparable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, this beautiful and powerful chapter. And I think we can all agree that this past year, past uh, 15 months, has been a little bit of a roller coaster. That it seems like every season, every month, there's these highs that we can experience, but then these great lows that we feel as well. When we think through all that we've been through, the times that we feel like things are hopeful and things are starting to go back to normal, to those times where it feels like things are just getting further and further delayed, that we've just been up and down, whether we feel isolated and alone, or we finally can see our family again. And what the beauty of Romans 8 does is that it shows us what we're grounded in, what we stand on. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, a theologian and pastor, when he talks about uh, this passage, the, the book of Romans itself and uh, Romans 8, is what well, says this, it is one of the brightest gems of all. Someone has said that in the whole of the scriptures, the brightest and the most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is this epistle or letter to the Roman church, the Romans. And so that of these, chapter 8, the one we're uh, focusing on is the brightest gem in the cluster. The most moving is this chapter 8. And that's what this series is going to be about, the inseparable love of God found in Romans 8. I've shared this before that uh, I have a group of friends that since we've known each other since middle school, uh, some even as young as elementary school, that we get together each year and we have like a guides weekend together. We didn't do it last year, but one weekend a few years ago, we went to this outdoor park, and it's way more than an outdoor park. They have whitewater rafting, they have zip lining, they have climbing walls, uh, they have a high ropes course and a low ropes course. But uh, one uh, feature, one thing that I was really fascinated with was this 100-foot drop. And what they do is they tether you all up, and you go up this wooden platform all the way to 100 feet above the ground. And what they do is, as they have you tethered, you walk onto this little plank. And what, what, imagine what happens next. You jump, and for the first 60, 70 feet, it feels like you're free-falling. And that last 30 feet or so, it slows you down, and then you get off, and they untether you. It's an experience like no other, and I can share that with you because I was actually on the ground just watching a lot of people do that. You know, I wanted to do it, but there's something in me that couldn't get myself to get up there and jump. Because what they do is they try to recreate the feeling that you're not tethered. You walk on the platform, you can't see anything else except the 100 feet below you and the little people uh, down there chanting for you to jump. And I saw people and over and over again, I just couldn't get myself to get up there. Because even though I knew in my mind that I would be secure and I'd be tethered and everything be safe, I just couldn't live into the reality of actually jumping and experiencing that. Well, when we talk about Romans 8, verse 1, Lloyd-Jones says something very similar. 
See, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. When we talk about verse 1, that most of us, there's a failure to recognize or realize the truth of this verse. Not that we don't know what this verse says, but that we don't live into it as if it's real in our lives. That we are safe and secure in God, but yet can't get, our le- get ourselves to live in a way that's true. That we find ourselves tethered but hesitant, secure but unwilling. And our goal today is simple as we kick off this Romans 8 series, is that we want to live into this life where we are free. And Paul talks about this life in the spirit, this free life. And what's going to shape us are just three questions that help us understand what it means to really live into that free life. First question is, what holds us back? What prevents us from getting up there? Two is, what is our confidence? When we're finding that, what's the confidence that we have that we know? And third, what is, what drives us forward? What drives us forward into this new life, this calling, this life of freedom? So first, what holds us back? What holds us back? Really simple what holds us back? Sin. Now, if you are uh, raised in the church or familiar with church, you know what this word is. You know it intimately. You know it even theologically. You even know what this carries. But those of you who aren't from the church world maybe haven't had as much experience in Christianity or just exploring who God is here Sin can be something you've heard about, but maybe you don't really know what it is when we talk about it. I remember when we lived in China and was, we were sharing the gospel, sin was one of the hardest words to communicate because that word doesn't exist in the Chinese language, and the closest we could get was crime or a legal infraction. And it's really tough to explain uh, that we are all covered in sin when they're like, well, I've never committed a crime. For some of you, when we think of the word sin, you think of something forbidden, something you shouldn't do, a forbidden pleasure or forbidden desire, something out there that I know I'm supposed to stay away from. But if you're unfamiliar with what sin is, I would offer another definition, something maybe we can all relate to in more of this context. Think of sin more like a deadly virus, a virus that comes and attacks and destroys everything in you that destroys your very livelihood, the relationships you have, and comes to infiltrate and take everything away, ultimately leading to death. See, not just a passive experience, but something that's aggressive to you, not something you could just avoid, but something that seeks to destroy your life. And because of this sin, this deadly virus, the scripture says that it stained us from God. It says that we're apart from God. And how Paul talks about it, the way that that sin has infiltrated us, how we pursued it, it talks about it this way earlier in Romans, and it says this, for all day they knew God, talking about people, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and hear this part, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God For images made to look like a mortal being and birds and animals and reptiles. And what Paul is saying here at the beginning of Romans is that all of us have exchanged God, the very glory of God, who God is, for something that's more palatable, 
something that we can control, something that's more in line with our lives, something that we know and are familiar with. We exchange this glorious God for something that makes sense in our lives, that fits our normal lives better. And Paul, as he argues through Romans, offers another solution, a cure to this virus, a virus that's brought death, destruction, and devastation, and ultimately a dividing wedge between you and the holy God. So what's the solution? Is it just living a morally right life? Paul argues, is it just doing the right thing, following the law and doing everything you can in your ability to obey it to your fullest? And Paul argues that even when you try to do that, if you try to follow all the rules and the laws that you think the church, a good Christian would do, because ultimately it starts casting condemnation back onto oneself because as you start trying to follow the law, you start seeing how it exposes the ways you fail. Even if you look at the Ten Commandments, you say, well, I'm just not going to steal from my neighbors. I just won't take things from them. It's that last one. Can you really look at your heart and say you don't covet what your neighbors have? That your heart is it seeking to take. See, God cares so much more about the obedience of your heart than what you do on the outside. So what does Paul conclude? He says this, what shall we conclude then? Do we have an advantage? Speaking of the Jews for centuries who've tried to follow the law, not at all, for we have already been made, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. See, the solution isn't in us, as Paul says. There's nothing in us that can remedy this deadly virus that's infiltrated us, our society, and the world itself. But he does offer a solution in one person and in Jesus. And there's a common illustration we hear a lot. If you've been in the church or maybe you've heard it over and over again when we hear this illustration of a village and a good doctor, that in this village, a sickness has come and infiltrated everyone in the village, but the good doctor finds a cure, and it's only found in uh, the blood of his own son. So he's faced with this task. He can either lose his son or lose everyone in the village, and the son lays his own life down, and through him, the whole village is healed. It's a simple illustration speaking about the sacrifice of the son's friends, it so applies to us that we are cured of this deadly virus of sin only through one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't just offer his life. He took the death and destruction and devastation that was meant for us, and he bore it upon himself. It's not that he just gave us a cure. He actually took what was deserved for us, and he took upon himself that he died so that we could have new life. He died so that we could be experienced this life of freedom, which leads to our second question. What is our confidence? What holds us back is our sin, but what's our confidence that we can step forward? And it's that person of Jesus. Listen to verse 1 again, that dismantles the darkness, the stain of sin in our lives. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This bold declaration that we have our confidence and what God declares for us. But so often we fall into a false paradigm. That truth of that verse that we don't fully understand or realize sometimes. One pastor gives this great 
illustration, uh, this commentary on what this means. It says this, they seem to think of the Christian as a man who if he confesses a sin and asks forgiveness is forgiven. And at that moment, he's not under condemnation. But then if he should sin again, he's once back under God's condemnation. Then he repents and confesses again, and his sin again is forgiven, and he's no longer condemned. So to them, this Christian is just going back and forth, back and forth from the state of being condemned and no longer being condemned. And what this paints a picture of is someone who's never really sure if they're under God's pleasure or disappointment. Friends, I wonder if you can relate with that in your day-to-day life, that you're never quite sure, is God pleased with my actions? Is God pleased with what I'm doing? Or is he disappointed in what I've done? It's a hard place to be because you're never quite sure. A funny illustration I can share, and I've checked with Aaron before sharing this, is, you know, if you are in a relationship or even if you are... Uh, are married or whatever situation you're in and you have that significant other, you know when the day is just full of tension. You know the work day, the how, even how the morning begins, you just feel it, right? And by the time you get all the kids to bed in my situation and everything's clean you, uh, and you're there and I turn to my wife and I said, hey, is everything okay? You, sometimes when the, I know the tension is thick, I get these two-word answers that just send a shiver down my spine where she says, I'm fine. And we all know she is not fine. But I find myself in that moment unsure of where I stand before my wife. And I do one of two things in that nature. One, either I start trying to scramble, and even though she's not ready to talk, I'll just keep asking questions, and I'll try to start fixing things. I'll start trying to make things better to prove that I am in a good standing with her. Or if I'm in a really bad place, I'll actually... uh, preload a rejection. I'll just kind of say, give her the silent treatment. I'll sort of like blame it on her and kind of step away, knowing that there's nothing I can do can make the situation better. So I'll actually get kind of angry and just trying to push her away. And I think it's something that we can relate with in a little bit when we think of God himself as well. See, we, when we're unsure of what we stand on, we either start trying harder you know, we start trying to be more holy. You know, we try to read our Bible every day, pray every day, and make sure we do these right things to show God, to prove to God that we are worthy of his love. Or we retreat into defeatism, where we give up and we just say, I'm just tired of feeling guilty. I don't want to feel that way. I'm just going to reject it and just stay on this side. But what Paul declares in Romans 8 is not this at all. And this is the truth that he needs, he's trying to convince us of, that he doesn't just say that we're just not condemned people. He declares that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that language is not just for that moment in time, but for all of eternity. What Paul is declaring because of what Christ has done, there is no condemnation in you. There is no judgment, no punishment, Nothing that is deserved of your sin has been, all that has been wiped away in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation throughout all eternity. There is no judgment for you because of what Jesus has done. And this one act of declaration, uh, theologians call the doctrine of justification. 
It's a beautiful doctrine. And in, in it, it talks about it's not something that you work towards, but it's this one singular act where God of all creation declares you as righteous. And therefore, there is now no condemnation in your life. Now, where did this judgment go, you ask? And we talked about it a little earlier, that God doesn't just forget about all the sins in your life. He doesn't forget about the sins that have infiltrated you and caused so much harm in you and others. But it says that it's been poured upon Jesus. That Jesus himself has took on, taken all the condemnation. And the beauty of it is what in return God does, what Jesus does, he pours his righteousness, his perfect life, and he pours it back on you so when God looks at you he sees Christ in you and he finds no fault in you the great reformer Martin Luther talks about this as the great exchange the great exchange which is better than the doctrine it's called the doctrine of double imputation right they, they come up with great titles for some of this stuff Second uh, Corinthians it says this God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God, do you see the gospel just in that simple passage? God made him, Christ, to become sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we could become the righteousness of God. See what happens there? Our sins get imputed to Christ and Christ's perfect life gets imputed to us. We are no longer condemned, friends, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For all of eternity, let every, uh, every song that's ever sung Every narrative that's spoken over your life, let it ring true of the grace that God speaks over you found in in Jesus. And imagine what this kind of life would look like. Imagine if you really believe this verse, not just in head knowledge, but the way you treat others, the way you live out your life. Imagine what kind of person you would be if you knew that you stood on with confidence that the God of creation, the only person in all of eternity that shouldn't matter, says you are no longer condemned. Sometimes I think what holds us back is, God, I know I made this promise, and I know you say this, but what if I fail again? What if I fall short again? What if tomorrow I mess up again? One pastor talking about this, kind of this effects of sin, you know, we're declared that the power of sin is no longer in our lives, but the effects are still there, and we still struggle with it. He says, we need to be that much more confident in going to him. He says this, the litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel, this good news of justification is what you do when you fail. That failure is one of the great things that shows us, right? He says, do you run from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back into the throne room? Or do you approach the throne of grace with confidence? He says this, if you don't approach the throne of grace with confidence, you don't understand the gospel that you are most offensive to God when you come to him with all your efforts, where you're still trying to earn what's freely given. See, what kind of faith is this that even when we fail, when we fall down, when we lose our way, when we reach the end of our ropes, that we can still have confidence to go to our good father. See, Paul describes this life, this confident life in Christ and his work for us, this life as a life 
of freedom, a life in the Spirit. So what drives us forward? What keeps us going in this direction? Verse 1 and 2 again, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit of life has freed you from the law of sin and death. Through Jesus, the Spirit frees us from the obligations, the duties, the inadequacies of a life of morality. Or, sorry, or rather a life of just morality. See, we, we get in danger when we start living a life of just mere morality, what we think is right and wrong. Or as Paul puts it, the law of sin and death or the old law. And for us, if we follow that path, we all begin to judge people according to our standards eventually. And it happens that we see the pattern throughout history and in scripture that the longer we're in church, the longer we're in, uh, in this community, that we, can, we are tempted to become one who judges others. They don't fit our definition of morality because we eventually adapt our laws into our own perspectives. And we justify them according to our own traditions or our own perspectives. See, we begin to judge people on who they vote for. We begin to judge people on where they eat and what they do and how they live their lives. Or even we judge people on where they place their shopping carts uh, after putting the car, uh, groceries in the car. And I'll share this with my story is that is one of the litmus tests for me if I know you're a good person or not a good person. <laughs> when I come out of the grocery store and I see you, putting your groceries away, and what do you do with that cart? Do you put it on the side and just drive off, or do you take the time to put it in the trolley? Now, you get bonus points if it's snowing and it's windy. You still got to do it, but that's my litmus test, and I think we can uh, agree that a lot of us are in that same boat. See, but it's time to turn a mirror on ourselves, even that little simple illustration. We need to turn a mirror on ourselves. The reality is, is that we all fall short. See, if we look to the laws of just morality or these codes or rules that we put up, we always end up on the short end of God's glory. See, God didn't rescue us to just live a religious life or even a socially uh, moral life. He called us in something much, much deeper. See, the law of sin and death always tries to remind you of who you are and what you were. But the law of the Spirit reminds us of what we are always meant to be that the Spirit reminds us who we are, that we're sons and daughters of the King, and we're supposed to live a life that brings blessing and flourishing to all things. See, we're not just freed from something, we're freed into something. We're not freed just from this bondage, we're freed into a new life that God calls us to, a life driven by the Spirit, a life of compassion, a life of grace, a life of serving others even beyond our own limits that God calls us to be a kind of people that goes beyond what we can even do on ourselves, but by the power of the Spirit, he draws us, calls us, and woos us, say we can be much better, that we can be the church now and forevermore that can change the trajectory of the world. Later in Romans, Paul talks about Christians saying, this is what a Christian is, what a person who's been captivated by the good news of the gospel, it's someone whose love is genuine, who is serving one another, who's outdoing one another, who's blessing those, even those who you disagree with, those who are actually persecuting you, Paul says, go and bless them as well. It's this outline of a life of freedom. But if, we find, if we're honest with ourselves, 
we often find ourselves more filled with judgment and condemnation rather than love and blessing. And it seems like every way we look, we just keep seeing shopping carts lying around and the people that keep doing it. In John chapter 8, one of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, there's this powerful account of this woman who's caught in the most shameful act at that time for a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And the religious leaders, those who have been walked with God the longest in that culture at the time, drag this woman at the feet of Jesus. And everything in them, they're justified to stone this woman. And Jesus, in his, why, in his wisdom and grace, begins to draw on the ground. And what he does in that moment, he does two things. One, he begins to dismantle the judging hearts of those around them when he asks them, those of you without sin, cast the first stone. And says the older ones begin to walk away first than the younger ones. And the second thing Jesus does, he gives you a glimpse of what life in the spirit looks like. He looks at that woman who's in the most shameful, the lowest point of her life, where the community, everyone around has looked at her with disgust. He says, neither do I condemn you. He frees her into a new life in the spirit. When we dismantle the old law of judgment and condemnation towards others, we are free to live the life of the spirit. By the power of Jesus and the spirit of God in you, you're able to do just that. That same life in the spirit God talks about, he allows us to be that as well. That we're able to restore. That we're able to reconcile, that we're able to heal, that we're able to bless, that we're able to serve, we're able to love, we're able to bring peace, that we're able to bring unity, we're able to bridge chasms, and we're able to destroy hatred, anger, and injustice in our world. Do you believe it, church? brothers and sisters, friends, sinners and saints all together that by the spirit of God in us, the power of the spirit, we have the power to do all these things. This new life that Paul declares for us to free us from sin, stand in our righteousness through Christ and to step forward into a new life of the spirit where we're able to actually live the life that changes the world. That's what he's calling us to in Romans 8. This inseparable love is not just for us, but to change the world itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of who you are and how amazing your declaration over us is that while we were sinners, while we were still far off, while we had no inclination in us to pursue after you, you loved us first. Father, that you sent your son to live the life we could never live and died the death that we so deserve so that in that we could be called the sons and daughters of you. And Father, by your spirit, you've empowered us to be the church, to be the bride of Christ, to be the blessing to all others in our world. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.